I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We are truly nearing the end of this book. Uh, Today we're planning to cover chapter 11. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll be covering chapter 12 and then we'll be done. Uh, So we are coming then to the point of uh, bringing all of this together. Uh, We're nearing what Solomon will call the end of the matter in chapter 12. And this chapter 11 today uh, is 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 a wonderful chapter that I think if we would hear it, Uh, believe it, if we would have ears to hear, this chapter would bring much freedom with it. A freedom to just live your life uh, before the Lord and for the Lord. And so let's let's, uh, begin by just reading this chapter together. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters... For you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind and will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. As one reads through Ecclesiastes, there's a tendency, you know, I think, there's a tendency to to get discouraged by what you read. Maybe become downcast, even frustrated by the vanity of everything that is constantly trumpeted. Um, But as we've noted throughout the book, throughout this series, I I trust you've, you've heard this, Um, This is not where the book of Ecclesiastes wants to leave you. Um, Solomon is is a skilled surgeon. He has an intent in all that he's doing. Uh, He's not simply trying to punch you in the gut and leave you doubled over by reminding you that nothing really matters in the end. Uh, That's not what he's doing. Really, Ecclesiastes and the low points when he forces us, the Word of God is forcing us to consider the fallenness of this world and the vanity that exists. This is really more Solomon's way of breaking the bone in order to properly set it. The outcome is to be better. 
We're to be better off for it. And as we look into chapter 11, and as we go through it here this afternoon, I want to focus on five lessons uh, from this text. Five lessons that will help you to embrace and live life under the sun in a God-honoring manner. I'm not, as, as we go through chapter 11, I don't think there's anything that's really a radically new concept through, from the book of Ecclesiastes, from everything we've seen thus far. Um, but he is now um, pulling this all together for us, I think, in a very helpful manner. And so we're going to look at five lessons. The first one is this. The first lesson for living life under the sun in a God-honoring manner is to come to grips with the uncertainty and brevity of life. To come to grips with the uncertainty and brevity of life. Um, we've said this from the very outset of Ecclesiastes. This has been one of the, the main messages of the book. And this continues right through to the finish line. If you remember, right out of the gate, Solomon starts proclaiming, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And many understand that to be really Solomon's text, if you will, as he's called the preacher throughout Ecclesiastes. That's what he's preaching, the vanity of life under the sun, the uncertainty, the vapor-like quality of life under the sun. And in chapter 11, this theme, no surprise, continues. And it runs throughout this chapter. It is often, it is sometimes in the background, and then it kind of bleeds through to the front, and it recedes a bit, and then it comes out again. It runs kind of like, another way of thinking of it is a thread through chapter 11. So look, for example, at verse 3. We'll come back to verses 1 and 2 in a moment. But verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. These are observations Solomon makes, and then he draws a conclusion in verse 4, makes his point, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So Solomon is saying that there are certain things that just are in this world. Um, when clouds are ready, when they're full, they let loose. They drop rain to the ground. That's just the way it is. It's going to happen. The wind blows, sometimes from the north, south, whatever direction it's coming from. It might knock a tree over, and when that tree falls, there it is. And so verse 4 then, as if after he says this, verse 4 makes his point that if you try to control everything, if you're constantly obsessing about the wind and what it may or may not do, or you're constantly watching over the clouds, you know, it might rain, so maybe I'll just stay home. It's 50% chance of rain today, so... I, Maybe I'll just stay home. If this is how you live your life, constantly wondering and watching and waiting, and I'm not sure I should move, then you're never going to sow, and ultimately then you're never going to reap. That's what he's saying there in verse 4. Things are going to happen that are outside of your control. And you still, despite that, need to get on with your day, need to get on with your life, despite these uncertainties. So we see this uncertainty of life and what's going to come exactly here in verses 3 to 4. But then in verse 5, we also see, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We can learn and we can understand the science surrounding conception and childbirth. 
And even that process itself will blow your mind and will declare to you the glory of God, the, the wonder and the power and the brilliance of the creator. But on top of that side of it, consider how does a spirit of a person come into that child? This immaterial part of us that we call the soul or here is referred to as the spirit of a person. How does God do that? As you won't know that, Solomon says, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Again, there's going to be much in life that you simply will not understand. He's just giving an example of that here. This isn't meant to depress you that there's going to be much that's outside of your ability to understand. Rather, if you remember, throughout Ecclesiastes, we've made this point. It's part of what Solomon's intending to do intentionally to uh, put God in his rightful place, so to speak, and you and I in our rightful place. There just are certain things we're not going to know. This is God's territory and realm. There's uncertainty. There's much we don't know or understand. Verse 8 continues. So if a person lives many years, we're kind of skipping over a couple of verses here, then to verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So in verses 7 and 8, there's a contrast here between light, which represents life, and darkness, which represents death. Someone's not just saying difficult days are going to come, but he's saying death is going to come. Though life might be long, indeed, first part of verse 8, death, he's saying, is longer still. And he repeats that all that comes, that is, all that happens in life, is vanity, is a vapor. It passes fast. He's not saying here, he's not denying the reality of an afterlife. He has stated it already. He's going to state it again. He's going to talk about judgment to come in just a moment. He's just, it's a poetic way of saying that even if you live a really long time, death is permanent. The days of darkness are many. This is what, this is what he means. Death is very permanent. Even a long life is a vapor. And then again, if you jump down to verse 10, we're reminded of the brevity of life when he says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Childhood and youth passes fast. They're fleeting. And so chapter 11 just does not let up on the reality that many things in life are uncertain And that there is much we simply will not know and understand. And the fact that life is brief. It's fleeting. It is a vapor. And as we've said over and over, this is critical to grasp. We tend to want control. We want certainty of how things will play out before we move, before we go. We want to remove every possible bad scenario and outcome. We want everything revealed to us. 
We want to do away with any and all risk or at least as much as, as much as possible. Often with very, very unrealistic expectations in these matters and we get frustrated and anxious and worried when we cannot control everything. But God's word here, in, in, again, in his, in his kindness to you and I, to you and me, in his kindness, he hammers home over and over again that this is not realistic. This is not how it works for you living life under the sun. It is necessary, it is good to embrace that this life in this fallen world is uncertain and it is brief. We have to come to grips with this. And as we've said, again, throughout this book, this, first of all, as we think about the brevity of life, this ought to first cause us to reconcile with God, to get right with the Almighty. The reality is your days could be brought to an end in an instant, at any moment, without any notice. And as sinners, there is only one hope of getting through what comes next without being under God's condemnation for all of eternity. And it is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to earth in the form of man, taking on flesh. He came. He died on the cross for sinners, paying the debt that sinners owe to God for your sin, your violations of God's holy law. Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice for sinners by taking upon himself the sins of all who trust in him and paying the penalty that we deserve. And he rose from the dead, of course, on the third day in victory over sin, satisfying God's demands, purchasing and securing eternal redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For everyone who repents of their sin and places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said throughout this book, Ecclesiastes cries out for this solution. It cries out for the gospel. As he lays out the vanity of life and the certainty of death, it prepares the way for Christ who comes to pay the penalty for sinners, to ultimately reverse the very curse of sin upon the world. To usher in the eternal kingdom. None of this temporary stuff. None of this kingdom of men business that comes and goes. But he is king over the eternal kingdom. And one day this whole world of Ecclesiastes, of vanity and working hard only to die young. And the righteous getting what the wicked seem to deserve. All of this will be gone. And we participate in that only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, again, this message of uncertainty, of vanity, cries out for the gospel. And so the first lesson is we think of coming to grips with life's uncertainties is to realize we are creatures. God is the creator. There's much we simply will not know and understand. And moreover, life is indeed short and passing 
How important to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The godly throughout the ages have come to grips with the uncertainty and the brevity of life under the sun. The second lesson, God calls you to get to work while you can in trusting all the outcomes to him. God calls you to get to work while you can in trusting all the outcomes to him. So we might be tempted to think that uncertainty is going to just produce paralysis. If there's much that I don't know, then I I should probably just stay home, not risk things. If the wind could blow, the rain might fall, maybe I shouldn't risk it. But as we've seen, Solomon commends to us work. He commends to us toil. He has declared its limitations. It is not an ultimate end. We know that. But it is still good. And it is part of, as he has said, our portion in this life. And so if the uncertainties and the brevity of life cause you to feel paralyzed, then I think there's some correction here. So back up to beginning here at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Verse 1 seems very odd when you look at it. It seems like a very strange thing to say. But I, I agree with those who would suggest that the word cast there, to cast your bread upon the water is not terribly helpful. I don't think it's a helpful translation, perhaps even um, misleading. This word is ordinarily translated to send. And so a number of English versions translate this verse along the lines of send your bread or your grain upon the waters or even across the seas. That is that he's referring here to trade or to investment. It is encouraging business an enterprise. And so when he says you'll find it, finding it after many days, uh, is a reference then to receiving a reward for sending that grain out, payment for it. We might think, again, that a fleeting world, everything's passing, there's a lot of bad things that could happen, would mean that we just shouldn't risk such a thing. We should just, again, stay home. Things are too risky. But that's not Solomon's conclusion. Verse 2, then, could be talking about, as, as there's kind of two ways to view this verse. Many would see this as talking about diversifying. So, uh, not putting all your eggs in one basket. That's a saying we, we know. That that's what he's getting at when he says, spread your portion around. Uh, that is, whatever you have to invest, to spend, your work, your money, whatever you're investing, um, spread it around in light of the fact that disaster could come at any time. Some people understand it that way. Others, however, take it as a statement about generosity. That when he talks about giving a portion to seven or to eight, that he's really talking about giving as a gift to others. And doing this in light of the fact that bad might come. Disaster might happen. So what he'd be saying then is if you... um, you hoard everything you have now and I'm not going to give now because I just need a little bit more. 
you might just end up losing it all anyway. So that in the end, he's commending here generosity while you have the ability and the option with whatever you might have now. I think this interpretation is, is more likely, in my opinion, to be what Solomon's getting at here. And then in verses 3 to 4, again, we have the teaching that if we simply wait around until all the conditions are perfect, and all the risk is gone, then the reality is you'll never move. You'll never sow and you'll never reap. The point is you still need to function in this world of unknowns. Ecclesiastes is not saying stay home and don't do anything. That's not the conclusion. We're called as God's people to work. He's given you vocation. Could be in the home. Might be out there. You might have several jobs. We have vocations. We have spiritual work in the church. Making disciples in your home. Raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. All of this takes place in an Ecclesiastes world of unknowns. We still are called to proceed. Verse 5 again reminds us that there's much we don't know, but also that this is God's domain. It is not simply that the unknowns of life are to terrify, but I think the implication here is that you're called to entrust yourself and the results of your work and the results of your life to the God who is the one who makes everything. That's the purpose of verse 5. This is to be your security in this world of unknowns. The one who is known. The one who is immutable. He does not change. Unlike all this vanity and all that's changing and coming and going and unreliable, everything we see around us in the created world that has fallen, God is not like any of those things. This is where your security is to lie. If you remember from the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles, King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, they faced an impending enemy and they're marshalling themselves and preparing. But he confesses, the king does, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is their security. This is their hope. Lots of unknowns in that moment, but they're looking to the Lord. You don't know what is to come with certainty, but your God does. And moreover, for believers, there are precious promises in Scripture. Not only does He just know, but also that He promises to work whatever that thing is around the bend for your good, ultimately for your good. And even if it is the valley around the corner, he promises to work it for your good. He does not abandon his people. Whatever's coming is not meant for your ultimate ruin. Verse 6 continues, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that or whether both alike will be good. So here Solomon is encouraging work, and not just 
work, but work into the evening. Multiple jobs, tasks, enterprises, since you don't know which one's going to work out. And so entrusting ourselves to God doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing you put your hand to is going to just work out perfectly. But nor is it a reason to, so it's not a reason to just sit back and be lazy, therefore. Solomon calls for diligence in labor, knowing that some efforts prosper and others do not. We're called to act wisely, carefully, even as we entrust the results to our God. So that's the second lesson. Getting to work while you can and trusting all the outcomes to God. The third lesson is to recognize that life is still a good thing. Life is still a good thing. With all that we've read in Ecclesiastes, again, all the vanity, we might misunderstand the intention of this book, as many people do, and be left thinking that life is just completely pointless. Or maybe worse yet, it's some cruel joke. But again, this is not Solomon's ultimate take. Verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. This is a poetic way of saying that it is good to be alive. That life is good. It is a sweet thing to see the light, to see the sun, to be alive. This is not nothing. It's a gift from the Lord. Life itself, living, is not an evil. Obviously, Ecclesiastes shows us, experience reveals to us that life is greatly corrupted by the fall of man into sin. Obviously, this is true. Man, as David said, David confessed, he was conceived in iniquity. Man is born into a sin-cursed world with a sinful nature and begins sinning basically right away in action. Death is therefore a part of our world. But the Bible tells us that death is in fact an enemy. People sometimes say death is just a natural part of life. It's just a natural part of the world. And we understand usually they just mean it comes for everybody. And that much is true. But strictly speaking, it's not right to say it is natural. Death was not part of God's creation. Death is an enemy, the Bible says. It is an intrusion into God's good creation. It is not good. Even so, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Life is still sacred. It still matters. Man was made in the image of God. And though man has fallen, that image is shattered. This still matters. This is why God takes murder, one of the reasons God takes murder so seriously. This is why in Genesis 9, he said murderers should be put to death because they have killed themselves, killed somebody who was made in the image of God. This is why things like abortion are, this is why abortion is murder and bad. Because life 
is still a good thing. Solomon has been warning us of the many abuses and limitations of life. He warns of wrong paths, wrong approaches that we might to life, that we might learn from him and then embrace life wisely in this fallen world. And so the message of Ecclesiastes is not pure pessimism. And so your view of life should not be pure pessimism. As he says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. This leads us into the fourth lesson, to rejoice in life as it is. To rejoice in life as it is. Verse 8, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. In view of light being sweet, of life being a good thing, the conclusion is drawn that if a person experiences many years, a long life, then he is to rejoice in them all. It's amazing, really. Hear his conclusions. After all we've seen in Ecclesiastes, calling us to rejoicing. Throughout the Bible, God's people are called to rejoicing. It's stated in many places as an imperative. It's not given to you and I as an option. God commands it. Perhaps most famously is Philippians 4.4. 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. Right? He says, again, I say, rejoice. We're called to rejoice. But clearly, this is not to be taken as some glib, sort of simplistic act on our part in which we just sort of pretend that things are not actually bad in the world. Some people take that approach. Obviously, that's not the case for Solomon. Some of the most brutal words in the Bible in terms of facing us with the difficulties of life come right from within Ecclesiastes. And yet, here he is, calling us to rejoice. Solomon adds as a reminder, as he calls us to rejoice, to remember, though, that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So this is essentially saying, rejoice in life as it is, understanding it is limited, that death is indeed coming. Even as he says to rejoice, if you have a long life, he's saying, remember though, that it will end at some point. Again, a reminder of the vanity, he says. All that you might do all of your many years, nevertheless, fleeting. So if we are trying to make this life something that it's not, we can be freed to actually rejoice in it. If we are trying to get more out of it than God has intended to control everything, to just know everything or a little bit more before I rejoice or, or have any sense of peace, trying to cling to life itself at the cost of all principles and truths and so on. None of this is what Solomon has in mind. 
Many people, many people try to make this life that which it is not. Many deny the reality they find themselves in. This, frankly, might be the truest pandemic of our time. Denying reality. Trying to live instead in some sort of fantasy world where boys can just be girls, if they say. Where love is love. Where we can control the weather. Where humanity is just essentially good. Or various other fantasies where pleasure is going to satisfy all cravings and give true meaning to life. Where wealth is going to satisfy and give true meaning to life. Things that Solomon has already tackled. Ecclesiastes has been trying, has been shaking us out of these false notions about life. It brings us back into reality, the actual world in which we live. And if one is prepared for death, has reckoned with the vanity of life, that is the the fleeting nature of life, and one is right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are freed from all of these false views about what life ought to be to rather rejoice in whatever days God has given you, however many of them he has designed for you. A believer's joy is not contingent upon circumstances upon everything being just right. There's always potentially a storm coming. If you give heed to the clouds, you'll never reap. This call to rejoice is one that you might want out of. You might think or be tempted to think that if life is as Ecclesiastes says it is, then rejoicing is simply not possible for me. Or it's not something I want. Maybe you've bought the lie. I could rejoice if the world was a certain way right now, but I can't rejoice now. But again, notice, as with here, verse 9, we'll see again in Philippians 4, 4, and other places. Rejoicing is a command of God's people to God's people. The fact is, life, the breath that is in your lungs right now is God's gift to you to be received with thankfulness, with gratitude. The fact that as a, if you're trusting in Christ, You have eternal life, an inheritance waiting for you. These are reasons to rejoice, even though all the world around you gives way. And so, as we look in the scriptures, as we look throughout history, God's people have rejoiced in him, even in the midst of tremendous difficulty and trial, whether you think of Job and all that he suffered and choosing, even with his wife's advice to curse God and die, he chooses instead to bless God's name. Whether you think of the life of Joseph, you picture Paul and Silas in prison, yet singing hymns, 
again, this is not pretending things are just better than they are. We can look at the world and life clearly, and we can look at it with honesty, acknowledging things that are not good, trials that we prefer not to be in, and yet still able to be joyful. And so the fourth lesson is to rejoice in life as it is. And this leads right into the fifth and final lesson for today. To enjoy life with one eye on eternity. To enjoy life with an eye on eternity. It is the reality of eternity before us that really helps to free us from trying to make more of this life than we ought to. That will free you from vexation over every trial. That will free you to rejoice even amid pain. Again, verse 9, the command to rejoice. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. While in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God would bring you into judgment. Notice we're not to put off rejoicing until we're older. And we've got some things worked out. He says to rejoice in your youth. To be in the strength of one's youth is a good thing. There's coming a day, which we'll see next week more into chapter 12. There's coming a day where the light dims and enjoyment becomes much more difficult as we age. So he says rejoice in your youth as a youth. Now, in light of the deceitfulness of the human heart, it strikes maybe as odd initially for Solomon to say, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. That almost, again, we talked about this last week. As we talked about uh, the, the heart. That seems like bad advice, perhaps. But the next line provides the rails. It provides the boundaries to this statement. He says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. There's, there's the boundary and the guardrail to your pursuit of what you enjoy. So this is saying to enjoy life, to do the things that you desire to do with the awareness that God is watching. Now, for the wicked of heart, this just crushes their plans, does it not? Uh, so much of fun today is tied to evil. And so the thought that God's watching means no more fun. That's how... Many would view this. But the text assumes a wise heart. If you remember, we talked about this last week, in chapter 10, verse 2, the, the heart that inclines the person to the right, the wise person, in the opposite direction of the fool. And so in, in New Testament terms, we can say that this assumes one is born again, desires to do, therefore, the things that please God, the one to whom you will answer. And so this is a call to keep eternity before you and then live your life. Notice what he's not calling for. He's not calling for you to engage in just endless introspection before you would dare take a step. Make sure everything's perfect in your life before you do anything. Make sure at all... He's not saying that. 
Fear the Lord. Honor Him as best you can. Do what you desire. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remove vexation from your heart. The word vexation could be translated as anger. To be vexed is not just kind of perplexed, but to be angry about stuff. Again, this might seem a bit Love well, of, of a shot, maybe, or a bit harsh coming from Solomon near the end of this book in which he has perhaps stirred up vexation, stirred up an amount of frustration, in which he's forced us to look at some of the upsetting realities of life in the fallen world. And now he comes along and says, hey, don't be angry about it. It might seem that way, but again, Solomon is not writing to leave us in despair, but to move us away from all that despair, to entrust ourselves fully to the Lord. You might feel justified in being angry. After all, it's 2021. There's much that is angering. But God says here through Solomon, to remove vexation or anger from your heart. Again, I'm reminded of James 1.20 where we're told that ang- the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The word pain here in verse 10 when he says to put, pain, put away pain from your body could also be translated as evil. You might even have a footnote in your Bible that tells you that. Evil certainly seems to fit the context, I would think, a little better. But Solomon is saying here, put away evil from your body. That is, he's saying to not engage in evil. Remove anger from your heart. Do not engage yourself in evil. The reason he gives is that the youth, youth and dawn of life are vanity. So he, he seems to have in mind here as he's writing um, youth, those who are younger. Youth is a time when anger and folly and sin can really lodge in the heart of a person and really set their course for life in a very bad and ungodly and destructive manner, direction. Probably anyone here who has passed your youth, that's a nice way of saying it, passed your youth, uh, you, we, you know people who've done this, who wasted their youth and it set them, and perhaps they've never recovered. Some of you maybe were that way as a young person and by God's grace have returned. In our culture, it's pretty well expected that youth will just engage in folly and sin. But being youth, being young in the Bible is, is a blessing. Again, the strength is generally associated with strength, health, energy, stamina. 
And Solomon's saying here, don't waste it. Enjoy it to the glory of God because it's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's going to pass. Before you know it, it seems like it's not going to happen. Every young person feels the same way. And then all of a sudden it happens. You ask somebody who's past their youth and they will tell you it went fast. He says, the dawn of life, our vanity, fleeting. Again, how quickly the child grows up. It's cliche because it's true. Now, if you're past your youthful days, this doesn't mean that vexation and anger are now permitted to lodge in your heart. I remember, I don't remember what birthday, but maybe 35 or something, when someone jokingly said to me, oh, good, now you're at the age where grumbling is no longer a sin. And, uh, of course, that's not true. <laughs> Remove vexation from your heart. Put away evil from your body. So, again, I think the lesson here is to enjoy your life with an eye on eternity. One day we will stand before God. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you needn't fear that day. But this is still a reminder, as best we can, by the help of the Lord, to live out our days in such a way that we will not be ashamed when we stand before God. live out our days. We seek to enjoy the good things in life that we've seen over and over in Ecclesiastes, committing our ways unto God, the God before whom we will stand one day. Obviously, every time we think about standing before God on that day, we need to remember our only hope of being justified is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a good and sure hope that if you consider these things and you feel conviction because you've spent much time in selfishness, you feel conviction because maybe you haven't had eternity stamped on your eyes, to, to rest in the work of Christ who saves sinners, whose, whose cross work is enough to satisfy God's wrath for your sins of yesterday, your youth, and your sins of the future that you've yet to commit. And then as those trusting in Christ to go about the work that he has given us on whatever days he has allotted to us, not in fear of what may or may not happen tomorrow, not just sitting here paralyzed, but getting about the work that he has called us to do in your vocation, in your home, in the church, and so on.
God is the Almighty Creator. We are His creatures. This is the way it's supposed to be, to live by faith, to entrust ourselves to Him. He is God. We are not. Good and upright is the Lord, the Scriptures tell us. Good and upright. And all His work is done in faithfulness. So hope not in man, nor in the things of this earth, but hold loosely to all of this. Look out into eternity and await the return of the King of Kings. He will return. He will reign forever with his people. This is where we set our ultimate hope. And whatever days he gives us now, we live unto his glory the best we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who is our only hope of righteousness, that through faith in him, we are justified. We are clothed in his righteousness. What your word calls the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of God that is revealed and received by faith. Father, we confess that we fall short of your glory. We often struggle to tr trust you. We become fearful and afraid of all that may happen, of evil around us. Father, I pray that you'd settle our souls on your steadfastness, that none of this escapes your notice or is outside of your control. Father, I pray that you'd grant, you'd grant us joy, that we would indeed rejoice in the days that you give us, however many they be, that we would not worry about what might come. Give us wisdom to navigate these evil days. I pray that you would grant us courage to take opportunities to point people to the only source of eternal hope, your Son. Father, I pray that you would help us to be those who make the best use of the time. Father, again, we fall short in every way. And so we, we praise you for the gift of your salvation, the gift of your grace. We ask you to lead us, to be near to us. Anyone here who is fighting to trust you, I pray that you would grant strength, confidence that you will see them through. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.